0: note that this episode of the year discusses sexual violence and rape. Back in early June of this year, screenshots from a group chat between members of the Columbia fraternity Phi Gamma Delta, more commonly known as Fiji, began to circulate online. The screenshots show a member sharing an offensive, sexual joke related to the Black Lives Matter protests that were gaining momentum across the country after the murder of George Floyd. Some members pushed back against the joke. Others supported it. In the weeks and months following, the culture of Colombia's Greek life system was once again called into question, especially the historically white fraternities and sororities in the interfraternity and panhellenic councils. An Instagram account with the handle at CUSurvivors was started on July 7th and has since posted over 140 stories from survivors of sexual assault in Rayback, Colombia. In an infographic posted on July 27th, the account found that nearly 40% of those allegations involve Greek life. Students have also spoken out about their experiences with racism, white supremacy, and anti-blackness. An alum who survived sexual assault as a student started an online petition to disband Fiji. Columbia isn't alone in these conversations. Spurred on by similar revelations and reckonings, abolition movements have emerged at colleges across the country over the course of the past few months. At Tufts University, the sorority governing panel decided to suspend its fall recruitment in order to assess its future. And at Vanderbilt University, fraternities and sororities have seen hundreds of members drop out. As the fall semester began, pan-Hellenic sororities at Columbia experienced significant numbers of disaffiliations. Around one in four undergraduates is involved in a fraternity or sorority, but the Greek community's actions affect many more students than just those who are directly involved. The future of Columbia's Greek life has now become a university-wide debate. But this summer was far from the first time that debate has taken place. In January 2016, Anushua Bhattacharya, then a senior in Columbia College and a former sorority member, wrote an op-ed in Spectator titled, Why I Said Sayonara to Sororities. Marches for Take Back the Night, a national movement to end sexual violence that is often linked to Greek life on college campuses, also occur annually and sometimes draw hundreds of participants. And in 1988, just five years after the first women were admitted to Columbia College, a group known as Students for Reform Fraternity System pushed for all-male fraternities to go co-ed. What can the efforts of those students, over 30 years ago, tell us about Columbia Greek life today? The pages of Spectator during the mid-1980s show an increasing awareness of how sexual violence, and in particular, date rape, impacted the lives of Columbia students. In September 1982, Barnard students led the university's first Take Back the Night March, which has been held annually ever since. Following the 1985 rape of a Barnard student in Riverside Park by a non-university affiliate, Sarah M. Phillips, who graduated from Barnard in 1987, wrote an op-ed in Spectator, cautioning Columbia students against seeing rape as a solely external problem. Rapists were on campus, too. What the New York Post, The Spectator, and the media in general don't publicize are the countless rapes committed by nice, clean-cut, all-American men. Society itself does not want to hear or talk about date rape, sexual harassment, or verbal and physical assaults that happen in public and in private. We do not want to conceptualize the rapist as a relative, friend, or classmate. Brendan Mernon, who graduated from Columbia College in 1988, penned an op-ed for his column in Spectator in March of 1986, titled Brotherhood Breeds Loathsome Attitudes. Mernon was a former member of Fiji, but left the fraternity after taking a year off from school. When he returned, a friend told him about her experience being sexually assaulted by multiple Fiji members. Mernin told me that he joined Fiji as a first-year thinking that it would be fun, a way to have a more typical college experience. That's something that I've heard from students attracted to Greek life, both back in the 1980s and today. Colombia can be pretty socially isolating as a first-year, and Greek life can seem like an easy way to make friends and find a sense of belonging. But Mernin says that in retrospect, Fiji went beyond developing a sense of mere camaraderie. Although he never felt endangered by the hazing he experienced as a pledge, Mernon describes a series of embarrassing tasks, followed by a loyalty litmus test. He remembers being isolated and told that an emergency had happened and that a fraternity brother was at fault. There is a mock interrogation
1: you're completely like debasing yourself. And then they do this whole, you know, loyalty test thing of like, what's your answer? What are you going to do? Is it, is he telling the truth or is he telling the truth? You know, and they just want to basically see if you're going to like knock on the other guys. Like that's all it is. They're going to put all the pressure in the world on you, break you down, make you really tired, make you really stressed out, try to get your anxiety ramped up your heart rate and everything. And then basically see like, are you going to knock on your friends? Like, that's all it was about.
0: It's this sense that fraternities were primarily organized to protect members from consequences, to create spaces that enable sexist and racist behaviors without oversight, that makes Mernon say that fraternities should be banned rather than reformed. In his op-ed, Mernon wrote the following, quote, Like most people, I've done some immoral things while at Columbia and I'm sure that I will have done more when I leave. I've probably run up more than a few entries in my security file. The difference is that what I do or have done has been as an individual. If I am wrong, only I am responsible for that wrong. For some, not all, of Columbia's fraternities, however, activities generally accepted as offensive are systematic, traditional, and institutional. The fraternities, then, as the institutions promoting these activities must be held responsible for them." Unquote. In the spring of 1987, four fraternity brothers were accused by black students of using racist slurs and insults in front of Ferris Booth Hall, resulting in a physical fight. Two of the fraternity members, Matthew Sodel and Drew Kraus, were in Sigma Chi and the other two Michael Bogacki and Don Chiesa were in Fiji. Despite rallies held at the end of March by the Black Students Organization and Concerned Black Students of Colombia, which called for the expulsion of all four students and tied their behavior to their fraternity membership, only Kraus was suspended. He sued Colombia, claiming bias and lack of due process, and eventually won. It was against this backdrop that students for a reformed fraternity system emerged. In the spring of 1988, about 15% of Columbia students were part of Greek life. There were 12 all-male fraternities, six co-ed fraternities, and three sororities. A new fraternity, Pi Kappa Alpha or Pike, was established in February of that year. On February 11th, University Senator Tom Camber, a junior in Columbia College, Requested funds from the Columbia College Student Council. His purpose was to make posters advertising an open forum on Columbia's all male fraternities. CCSC declined, so Camber went to the University Senate instead. A couple of weeks later, on February 28th, the first meeting of Students for a Reform Fraternity System took place. However, Rather than seeking the removal of Greek life or addressing all of the issues students had identified, the group had a very specific goal, making single-sex Greek organizations go co-ed. For SFARFS member Peter Sheehy, then-brother of the fraternity Sigma Nu, his original concern was about housing equity. As a transfer student, he hadn't realized that living off-campus his first semester forfeited guaranteed on-campus housing in the future, So he joined Greek life to live in a fraternity, Brownstone.
1: Uh, And, of course, only men had access to that housing opportunity. So I saw it as as an issue of equity in terms of access to housing, Um, in addition to the separate issue of the culture of Greek life. But on that principle alone, I felt it was a very strong case that the university should not be affording this opportunity to its male students, not its female students. Um, And I thought that that was indefensible. Um, The school really wanted no interest in that, had no interest in that debate.
0: The group also invoked Title IX and drew parallels between their efforts and a then-ongoing Supreme Court case about the constitutionality of barring women from elite all-male social clubs. However, students for a reformed fraternity system also hoped to address the discriminatory culture that they saw within all-male fraternities, not just housing inequity. An op-ed written by Sheehy, Camber, and Pat Golbus, another leading member from the Barnard class of 1989, argued the following.
2: Perhaps brothers just want to maintain their privileged status in society. We should not ignore the strong tie between membership in exclusive social clubs and general quote-unquote snootiness. Social clubs are about superiority. They ooze privilege.
0: Surely, they reinforce stereotypes about the inferiority of excluded groups. No wonder, then, that Fraternities are bastions of sexism, racism, and homophobia. These others are not part of their elite. Throughout the 1988 spring semester, the Greek life debate was waged in a handful of meetings and forums and on the pages of Columbia's student publications. One prominent voice on the side of the fraternities was Fiji member Neil Gorsuch, now a United States Supreme Court Justice. In his column for Spectator, titled Fed Up!, Gorsuch discussed the ongoing debate and dismissed student activists as, quote, aimlessly criticizing whatever struck their fancy, unquote. In The Federalist, a publication co-founded by Gorsuch in 1986, he wrote a con column against students who reform fraternity system with Michael Barringer. Gorsuch and Barringer captured the main argument mounted by fraternity members. that SFARFS, a group of 10 to 15 students who were almost entirely not Greek life members, had no right to impose such a radical change on fraternities, and had no true insight into the Greek life community.
1: What such heavy-handed moralism misses is the fact that Colombia is a pluralistic university, that its fraternity system is equally pluralistic, with options available for everyone.
0: They argued,
1: We ought to ask the supporters of the proposal why 10 to 15 students Ought to take precedence over seven hundred students and their lives.
0: At the time, she he was still living in the Sigma New brownstone, even after joining students for reform fraternity system.
1: I was never like harassed or threatened by them, but it was obviously a very tense situation. Um, and I, I, you know, I did have um, people from other fraternities, uh, you know, throw things at me or you know cups of beer things like that.
0: In student newspapers, fraternity members such as Adam Clots then president of the Interfraternity Council, and beta member Jamie Gamble, claimed that reformers who had not participated in the system could not understand its problems. Other proponents of single-sex fraternities argued that sexism and racism existed on campus independent of Greek life. When the Students for Reform Fraternity System proposal was finally the subject of a university senate forum in mid-April, the IFC removed date rape as an official topic for discussion, claiming that it was an unfair accusation. These claims ignore the reality of the role that Greek life played and continues to play on Columbia's campus. Even though only 15% of students were members of Greek organizations, far more interacted with the system. Fraternities had an absolute monopoly on Columbia's brownstones, which are some of the only social spaces on an urban campus. This in turn gave them a dramatic influence over campus social life. Students for our reform fraternity system was formed in response to problems that illustrate that influence. For students looking to socialize, fraternity parties were some of the only options. The problems within the Greek system impacted the student body at large. And this was especially true for date rape and sexual violence, which necessarily involve partners. The forum in April was held by the University Senate's Student Affairs Committee in order for committee members to create a report with recommendations on the issue. That report would then be passed along to the Senate, which would vote on the resolution. Although the resolution wouldn't have any real impact without support from Columbia itself, the forum was an important platform for students from both sides of the debate to make their case. Asia Johnson, a current senior in Columbia College, was a member of the sorority Sigma Delta Tau from her first year up until this past August. She had already planned to leave the sorority for her senior year, feeling that she didn't really fit in. But as protests for racial justice and equity swept the country this summer, she and other members of SDT decided to speak up about the problems they saw in the organization. The chapter was split on whether the sorority could be reformed or if it should disband. All six of the Panhellenic sororities have faced criticism this year. A similar story played out for Madison Murphy, a senior in Barnard College and a former member of the sorority Alpha Omicron Pi. She went through recruitment as a sophomore. Like Johnson, Murphy remembers thinking that Columbia Greek life would be different from the fraternities and sororities in other parts of the country, more progressive, But Johnson and Murphy both found Greek life at Columbia to be deeply entrenched in classism, heteronormativity, and white supremacy. Murphy tells me that while she disliked recruitment as a potential new member, it wasn't until she was a sister recruiting others that she realized how deeply those values are ingrained in the system. Murphy claims that the national headquarters for AOPI offered guidelines for recruitment that established rich, white, conservative women as ideal sisters. The CU Survivor's Instagram account was also influential, illuminating how sororities experience and sometimes perpetuate sexual assault and rape. Just like in 1988, the Columbia-owned brownstones assigned to fraternities and sororities remain an important part of the
2: conversation today. Columbia funds these spaces. They give them brownstones. You know, there are other clubs that have, like, lounges or small rooms to meet, like clubs around, you know, identity groups, around, you know, marginalized groups who have limited space to convene and these spaces of primarily wealthy white people have brownstones like these buildings that you know have it it just sort of it demonstrates the ethos I think of community on campus you know it's sort of like this and a friend of mine mentioned this before but you know, the sense of, like, self-segregation. Why lot of these people already come from wealthy spaces, and they choose to perpetuate that system again and again.
0: Unlike students for a reformed fraternity system in the 1980s, this year's movement was internal to Columbia Greek life. Earlier in the summer, Johnson and other sisters set up Zoom meetings and distributed information within SDT to discuss their opinions. Johnson says that about half of SDT's Columbia chapter, 50 members, Disaffiliated this summer?
2: It just happened, I guess, sort of um, organically, I'd say. I think a number of different, you know, I'd say now ex sisters and I, you know, just sort of communicated pretty casually about, you know, there's this big national movement um, and a number of other college faces to rid, you know, their communities of Greek life. And, you know, it was a question of like, well, can we do that here? What would that look like? How would that work? Is anyone else doing it? Um, And I think, you know, then became a question of like, why don't we? What do we have to lose by presenting this to the broader community um, and actually trying to do something about this with the power we hold? And I think that's where things really took off. In August, leaders
0: from AOPI, including its then president, sent out a letter announcing their intention to disaffiliate and encouraging other members to consider doing the same. Here's a small excerpt. Quote, even if we may have never, as chapters or individuals, committed acts of interpersonal violence we continue perpetuating systems of oppression and violence by participating in an institution which enables this harm, end quote. But for Murphy, it goes beyond that. Like Mernon, she describes a culture built to protect wrongdoing.
2: I And I think placing all the blame on the system and on the headquarters um, takes culpability away from the very real issues we have within our chapter. Um... You know, people, there were times when sisters have done, like, racist things and, you know, been very problematic, but, like, you're expected to still, like, be sisters with them and not call them out because, like, sisterhood. And that happened within our own chapter.
0: Murphy looked forward to an all-chapter meeting to discuss the letter and potentially vote on disbandment. But representatives from the national headquarters were present Making impassioned statements in support of the sorority. Another sister had already been appointed to replace the outgoing chapter president. About half of SDT's members remain, and according to Murphy, only about a fourth of AOPI sisters is disaffiliated. And while other panhellenic sororities have had similar disaffiliations, that doesn't seem to have been the case for most IFC fraternities. Once students disaffiliate, they lose access to those conversations about the future of Greek life.
2: You know, we attempted to remain integral to certain conversations, and were essentially iced out of those. Like, well, you're no longer a member, so you actually can't show up. And it sort of proved the point, right? Of like, this space is not meant to be inclusive. It's it's meant to sort of be, um, you know, this almost like uh, what's what I'm looking for. It's sort of like a the arbiter of power. You know, it's like if you're in it, you're in it. If you're not, you're not. And like that's kind of the distinction.
0: At the University Senate Forum, the IFC's arguments eventually won out. On April 20, 1988, the Student Affairs Committee passed recommendations for reforms within Greek life, but did not endorse making all male fraternities go co-ed. Instead, it recommended starting a date rape prevention program. It also suggested making sure that the number of all male fraternities was equal to the number of co-ed organizations plus sororities. The committee affirmed the right of single sex organizations to exist on campus. Jonathan Levine, a then committee member and now co-chair of the Columbia University Board of Trustees said, quote, we found problems in the system that could be corrected without destroying the system, end quote. Students for a reform fraternity system gathered again the following fall. It published additional op-eds and spectator until the silent protest outside a fraternity party to raise awareness. But at the same time, Greek life at Columbia was growing. A Spectator article from September announced that there had been a 22% increase in participation from 1987 to 1988. The IFC admitted two new sororities, Delta Gamma and Alpha Chi Omega, bringing the total number of sororities to five. By the time the University Senate voted on the resolution in March of 1989, almost a year after the Student Affairs Committee had passed its set of recommendations, the momentum had begun to dry up. David Amanula, C's class of 1990 and University Senator, published an op-ed in Spectator on April 5, 1989, that declared frat co-education a futile fight. Amanula argued that although frats had problems, sexism and racism weren't unique to Greek life and that the university itself would never enforce reforms that would interfere with donations. The university's donations have been in decline since 1968 and Amanullah claimed, perhaps accurately, that the administration would never take steps that would alienate wealthy alumni. Reporting in 2020 from the New York Times and Vox has found that the same is true today student movements to disband Greek life have been happening across the country parallel to Columbia at schools like Vanderbilt and Northwestern. Yet the fear of retaliation from powerful alumni with Greek ties has paralyzed university administrations. The factors that undermined students for a reformed fraternity system back in 1988 are largely still in play today. Students outside of Greek life struggle to change a system that remains opaque Members of fraternities and sororities debate whether reform or disbandment is the best option, weighing the problems of the system against a desire for community. Columbia's administration has not weighed in. Institutional change is difficult in any context, and financial and cultural obstacles aren't unique to Greek life on college campuses. But there's a unique challenge to student activism that can make it difficult to sustain momentum. The student body renews itself every four years, and many of the students who advocate for change are juniors and seniors. For alumni like Mernon and Sheehy, it's disheartening to see that the issue they tried to address over 30 years ago is still happening.
1: Like, I should have done more. If I look back, knowing what I knew and what I had been through, what, I wrote a couple articles, I made a couple speeches, that's nothing. Like, I should, knowing what I knew, I should have, like, taken more risks. Maybe I should have carried a mattress around. I didn't do that or something like that. Maybe I should have got a bunch of people together to like do some other thing. You know, on the, on the steps of low, I didn't do that. I didn't have the courage to do that. Right. But it's, but like, you, you know, the point of the university is, is to change the conditions of, of, of the way people experience the reality so that then they can do better going forward. And it's really discouraging that it's still happening as much as it is. It's not right.
0: After the events of the summer, Johnson has largely moved on from Greek life. Her comments are
2: an almost eerie echo
0: of Mernon's.
2: There is a lot of work still to be done um, in these spaces. I think, you know, the sad reality is that a lot of the people leading these conversations were seniors. So we're on the way out, you know, like we're, You know, moving on, we're going to graduate soon, um, and it begs the question of, you know, how will this conversation continue? And I think, you know, when we had conversations that involved, you know, newer members, I think it was an important moment of perspective for me because I think if I were, you know, a a freshman who just joined, a sophomore who who just joined, I think I would probably feel a little stuck. You know, I had my time in this already. I got to experience the highs and the lows. I think a lot of younger members don't get that. They're suddenly thrust in this conversation, um, you know, with, with little guidance. And so I do wonder, you know, how this will proceed. I think, you know, there's a certain degree of continuity that may not exist. Um, and I'm choosing not to worry about that because I've got a whole lot of the stuff on my plate. But I do think that. You know, it is unfortunate that, um, and I think this is also like a mirror on society writ large. I think this summer was a real inflection point in my country's history of dealing with a lot of ugly truths, a lot of hard truths, um, and a lot of, you know, I'd say indiscretions that people are really comfortable not talking about at all. But, you know, in light of the election, I think a lot of people are gonna go back to this, this point of complacency, of feeling like, well, you know, we've gotten this far, Let's take a breather. Let's acknowledge what we've done. And I think you see that on a microcosmic scale a Columbia's campus. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do. You know, I think I think to some degree um, we were able to use a critical moment in our country's history to foment change. But I don't know if that will continue. And that's pretty unfortunate.
0: Whether the events of this summer and fall will have a lasting impact remains to be seen. But just as the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted Columbia's academic calendar, it's also dramatically changed how clubs and student organizations, including fraternities and sororities, function. When the student body eventually returns to campus, what happens next could be anyone's game. This episode of The Ear was reported by Teresa Lawler. It was produced by Sam Hyman and edited by Cole Cahill and Eve Washington. This episode featured the voice acting of Grace Holloman, Emma Specht, and Matthew Lucia. The music in this episode comes from Chad Crouch, Alan Pillajack,
2: and Matthew Lucia. Thank you for listening to The Ear.